The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Well, here's something I think most of us can agree upon. It's hot. And it's not just livestock that are suffering. Crops can have setbacks as well this time of year. We'll tell you how all the triple-digit temperatures lately are affecting the Sacramento Valley rice crop. The future of farm labor immigration to California is uncertain. That and other issues have California's farmers rushing to mechanize harvesting and planting operations. But there's been growing pains to getting that new machinery working correctly in the fields. Is biochar in the future of your farm soil? We talk with a soils expert about that. Plus, crop reports, supermarket trends, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Sacramento and many other areas of northern and central California broke the records in July, temperature records. Here in Sacramento, temperatures hit at least 90 degrees in downtown Sacramento every single day in July. And that's never happened before in records dating back to 1877, according to the National Weather Service. And we've had our share of 100 degree days as well, with over 20 so far this year and a lot more to come. And when the temperatures hit 100 degrees, rice growers begin to work. Rice growers like Josh Shepard. He talks about the triple-digit heat hitting the Sacramento Valley as the rice crop is entering a very important growth stage. So about a week ago, this field of rice, uh, the heads started to emerge from the boot of the plant. Uh, Now the field is completely headed and and it's about 80 days old. We would expect uh, about two months from now to the harvest to begin on this field. The concern this week, though, is the Sacramento Valley experiencing some really high daytime temperatures uh, in excess of 100 degrees. It's right on the border of of the pollen uh, being damaged before it actually, you know, fertilizes and, and makes a kernel of rice. There's nothing we can do to control or mitigate this system other than, you know, a little bit of water as an insulator but but largely it's 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 mother nature's call depending upon where you live in rice country here in northern california the extended forecast calls for highs in the upper 90s with a few of those days hitting triple digits the potential of an animal disease outbreak and the related economic hardship it could cause for a livestock or poultry operation is why producers need a written prevention and response plan to such incidents. University of Missouri Extension economist Ray Massey explains a written plan is similar to an insurance policy and that creating one and going over it with a bank or lender ahead of a potential outbreak can provide much needed financing for producers, especially during a worst case scenario. And hey, I have an idea of how to get through this, but I need essentially a promissory note or a line of credit in case this happens so that you're aware of it. That goes a long ways in helping you get through it. Massey adds a written plan should include everyday biosecurity prevention and preparedness strategies for an animal disease outbreak, as well as contingencies and flexibilities on how producers would handle such an event if it were to occur. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Eight of America's top 10 beef producing states voted for Donald Trump last November. Those eight were Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Texas, and Wisconsin. The other two states, California and Colorado, went for Hillary Clinton. 
But American cattlemen in those eight states, well, for that matter, in all 10 states, have been gored again by the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Pact. That's according to an editorial in the August 2nd Wall Street Journal. Japan last week raised the tariff on frozen U.S. beef to 50 percent from 38 and a half percent for the next eight months, while Australian ranchers enjoy a 27 and a half percent rate, and they can expect that to fall to 9 percent over the next six. 16 years if the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes ahead. Japan is the leading market for American beef. They consumed something like $1.5 billion worth last year. But Australia is a fierce competitor, and they already enjoy more than half the market for frozen beef. According to the Wall Street Journal editorial, Mr. Trump's best bet is to quickly expand U.S. exports to Japan and return to the TPP with its lower Japanese tariffs on food products. The Wall Street Journal says there are more losses to come if the U.S. stays out of the TPP. Kentucky Farm Bureau President Mark Haney told the Senate Agriculture Committee that lawmakers need to counter a steep four-year drop in commodity prices that has left farmers and ranchers in worse shape than any time since the farm depression of the 1980s. Given the state of the farm economy, he says protecting farm bill spending and maintaining the farm safety net is critical in the next farm bill. Really the goals of American Farm Bureau and the Farm Bill this year is to keep the safety net of crop insurance at the center. However, we want to be able to expand programs and help dairy. We want to be able to utilize and enhance our county program, a PLC, all those we want to be in place. We want to be able to choose, re-enroll in the new Farm Bill and really be able to use those programs that's operational for their farm. Haney urged Congress to maintain robust funding for conservation programs that encourage environmentally sensitive farming practices, as well as for research programs that will keep ag on the cutting edge of technology. Research has a huge impact on the way we produce and the way we're going to produce in the future. How we're going to deal with maybe a shortage of water or how we're going to improve yields when we have less water, less inputs, all those things has to be done from the angle of research. He says a strong farm bill will support the farm and rural economy. We're all looking for the same thing in rural America. We want to be able to continue multi-generational farming. We want to be able to raise our children and our grandchildren in a rural community that provides the best of the world it can offer. They want pristine waters and good roads and, and good infrastructure, nice schools and hospitals and all the things that go with where you and I and other folks want to live. We want that for our children. The Farm Bill helps deliver that. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Wheat was harvested for grain. The shaft baled for straw. Alfalfa fields were being irrigated, cut, and baled. Corn and sorghum for silage are being cultivated and irrigated. The corn silage crop was in various stages of development, from already tasseling to developing ears. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and is reported to be growing well. Cotton is blooming and forming bowls. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Mid-season peach, nectarine, pluot, and plum harvest is ongoing. Some harvested stone fruit orchards are being pruned and topped. Table grapes were harvested, the vineyards irrigated. Wine grapes are maturing well. The Valencia orange harvest continues, but was winding down due to the high temperatures, as well as the fruit availability. 
Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards continue to be irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed control continues in orchards. Harvest preparation was underway in almond orchards. The almond harvest began in the warmer regions of Kern County. Pistachios were beginning to split. Naval orange worm sprays and fertilizers were applied to pistachios. Walnuts are sizing well. In Calusa County, triple-digit heat impacted the harvest of vegetables, and that includes processing tomatoes as well as honeydew melons. The processing tomato harvest is somewhat erratic, interrupting the smooth flow of ripe tomatoes to the canneries. The melon packing sheds are affected by the inconsistent flow of fruit. In San Joaquin County, the harvest is ongoing for honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupe onions, as well as fresh vegetable crops. Farmers market vegetables continue to be harvested and offered for sale. In Monterey County, mid-year harvest and production slowed for two weeks. It was expected to pick back up with more harvesting and preparation for the third or last rotation of the year. All commodities, lettuces, brassicas, and spinach were in production. Asparagus is finished. Artichokes will pick up again in August. In Fresno County, the harvest continues for both organic and conventional tomatoes with lower yields than expected. Quality was reported to be, though, as very good. Onions, carrots, and lettuce seed were harvested. Soil was prepped for yellow peppers. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers were picked by certified producers and sold at the local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are harvested and being shipped domestically. Sweet corn harvest continues and was sold at roadside stands as well as local farmers' markets. Melons were irrigated and prepped for the upcoming harvest. In Kings County, the tomato harvest continues with a decent harvest reported. Tomatoes were sprayed with fungicides and pesticides. The decline in nutritional quality of rangeland grasses in Forbes is ongoing. Range and dryland pasture conditions across the state were reported as fair to very poor. Some north state pasture and range was burned by wildland fires. Elevated temperatures continue to impact milk production. Bees were active in melon and sunflower fields. <laughs> Having problems finding the KSTE Farm Hour podcast? You are not alone. The best bet? Resubscribe through your favorite third-party podcast aggregator. Do a search for the term KSTE Farm Hour. Also, you can listen to the podcast via the iHeartRadio app or the KSTE.com website. That disaster of last winter just won't go away. You may recall Oroville Dam's main spillway suffered a massive crater back in February, prompting operators to limit water releases in an effort to contain damage. Well, it started raining, and it rained a lot. At that point, dam operators ramped up water releases dramatically to reduce lake levels, and that caused problems downstream along the Feather River and its tributaries. Riverbanks started caving in when those high flows were dramatically reduced later on. The result? Flooded farmland, including the loss of acres and acres of walnut orchards. And the Sacramento Bee now reports that a Butte County farmer has filed a $15 million claim with the state over that crisis, saying water rushing down the Feather River wiped out part of his walnut orchard. The claim was filed by Gem Farms and Shandon Ranch, which runs a 2,000-acre walnut farm downstream of the dam. That claim said water releases from Oroville led to lost acreage, lost production, as well as cleanup and remediation costs. Several business owners and others have filed claims with the state as well. With the Department of General Services over the Oroville crisis, the state has set an August 11th deadline for filing. 
Big data has become a big part of farm production and precision agriculture these days. As Jake Flanders of John Deere observes. We're going to get more and more precise. For the last, I don't know, 15 years, it's always been bigger, faster, stronger has been the mantra. But now we're taking that and we're moving it over to smarter, easier, and more precise. Part of this is in the way data is collected. And while there are all manner of sensors and GPS systems available working together with the various parts of farm machinery to gain valuable information, data collection also involves the approach. Chris Everson of Farmer's Edge points to the practice of soil sampling grids. A grid would be essentially laying a square grid across a field and taking soil samples from there based on some repetition. So you're really taking mother nature that doesn't work in straight lines and you're developing it into a straight line and trying to make analysis based on that. And soil sampling grids work with modern technologies such as GPS and smartphone apps to give the grower that real-time information needed when it comes to, say, nutrient fertilizer rate application. One example comes from Lance Rupert of Growmark. A basic example is split the field, fall applied anhydrous ammonia, inserv versus no inserv use. And then we're tracking the nitrate and the ammonium levels through the winter and the growing season to identify what the placement of the plant available nitrogen is and in the form to see for managing nitrogen to conserve it better. Additionally, these snapshots of information collected become part of a growing database that gives producers a historical perspective and average over time. It wasn't that long ago, though, that much of the data information collected was proprietary, based on what brand or model of machinery and technology was used by the producer. But Jake Flanders says that in recent years... I think that's an industry-wide recognition that we all need to play nice with each other when it comes to data. The response from farm machinery and tech types has been creating more open source data systems and application programming interfaces so different programs can talk to each other and with those collecting data for analytics. Analytics according to Jason Little of Agrable that are presented to growers in understandable formats for daily and long-term decision making about their operation. So we're turning it into actionable items and we're really turning precision agriculture into decision agriculture. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Asian longhorn beetle. Now, there's a serious pest you don't hear about much in California these days. In fact, the last time Asian longhorn beetles were found in California were in Sacramento County back in 2005. At that time, the beetles were suspected hitchhikers in a shipment from China containing solid wood packing material. The California Department of Agriculture jumped right on the case, literally jumping right on the case, as the warehouse and contents were fumigated and within a quarter mile radius of the place forest service smoke jumpers were used to look for more asian longhorn beetles the beetles larvae burrow into trees eventually destroying the cambium layer that's the layer that carries food and water from the roots to the leaves while they prefer hardwood trees such as maples and elms the beetles could use any kind of hardwood and if they ever got loose again in california it could cause havoc in california's commercial fruit tree or Orchards. The Asian longhorn beetle is a problem back east. The USDA Stephanie Ho files this report. USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, is in the midst of an eradication program to wipe out a destructive and invasive pest known as the Asian longhorned beetle. The eradication program for Asian longhorned beetle is an effort by USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service to eliminate Asian longhorned beetle. That was APHIS Public Information Officer Rhonda Santos. The beetle actually attacks 
A lot of our hardwood trees and the damage that it causes weakens the tree and so they can become safety hazards for um, folks and property. Also storm damage is worse. So our efforts are to get rid of the beetle and remove it from the areas where it's infesting trees. The first thing to know is which areas are affected. Right now we have three states that are fighting Asian longhorn beetle infestations, New York, Massachusetts, and Ohio. She says USDA works with state and local officials. We have survey folks, employees that go out and actually inspect trees. So they look at the trees that this beetle attacks and they look for signs of damage, such as the exit holes, egg sites, and even the beetle itself. Adult Asian longhorned beetles are shiny black insects about one to one and a half inches long with random white spots. They are named longhorned beetles because of their antenna, which can be as long as twice their body length. And when we find infested trees, those trees will unfortunately be removed. That's the 100% security that we have that that beetle is gone from that tree. Signs of infestation include perfectly round exit holes up to half an inch in diameter made by adult beetles when they emerge from trees as well as pockmarks on tree trunks and branches where females deposit their eggs. We work with partners in each of the states to replant trees behind the removal efforts. So trees do get replanted and eventually they'll grow and and be big trees again. The Asian longhorned beetle was first discovered in New York in 1996. It was believed to have stowed away on wooden pallets in shipping containers from Asia. So the naturally occurring insects in those countries, they may have bored into the tree and that tree was cut down and then the timber taken and converted into lumber and then that was used to make pallets. That was the head of the National Institute for Food and Agriculture Sunny Ramaswamy, who says there are basic things ordinary people can do to help slow the beetle's spread. You will see signs on the highways that say, do not move firewood, okay, because these insects are getting into the wood, into the firewood, and people want to move firewood. You know, I'm, I got my pickup truck, I'll go pick up some firewood, let's say, in Pennsylvania, because I'm up in Pennsylvania, put it in there and bring it down to Virginia or to North Carolina. And pretty soon, the insects start spreading. Late summer is a prime time to spot the beetles. For more information or to report signs of damage, go online to Asian Longhorned Beetle, one word, dot com. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Crop condition ratings for corn and soybeans are below year-ago levels, as recorded in the USDA's latest crop conditions report this week. American Farm Bureau Federation Market Intelligence Director John Newton says this year has been a challenge for growers, with excessive moisture and planting delays this spring and drought conditions in parts of the upper Midwest. I don't think many in the trade are anticipating another record corn or soybean crop this year. USDA has yields at this point in time at 48 bushels per acre on beans and 170.7 bushels per acre on corn. And I think the market's looking to the crop production report next week to get an updated expectation of what these yields just might be. Newton says the upcoming crop production report next week could provide better market direction heading into harvest season. At this point, I've told a lot of people to have a marketing plan in place and watch the yields that come out next week and make informed marketing decisions. I think if we see yields come down, we may even see estimates of harvested 
at acreage start to come down, the corn supply could be a lot smaller than folks anticipate, and that could help to pull down some ending stocks, and that'd be very bullish for prices. Newton says more data is available regarding yield expectations on the Farm Bureau Market Intel webpage. We did an analysis looking at the probability of maybe seeing corn yields this year moving back towards trend. The long-term linear trends, 166.8 bushels per acre, and we certainly think that's a better probability of happening relative to the USDA's 170.7. So we look at the implications of seeing a corn yield at or below trend and what that may mean on the supply in 2017. That information can be found at fb.org forward slash market intel. Michael Clements, Washington. Despite the adoption of drones, iPhone apps, and satellite-driven sensors, the hand and knife still harvests the bulk of California's more than 200 crops. The Los Angeles Times reports that the $47 billion ag industry in our state is trying to bring technological innovation up to warp speed before it runs out of low-wage immigrant workers. Immigrant farm workers in California's agricultural heartlands, they're getting older and they're not being replaced. After decades of crackdowns, the net flow across the U.S.-Mexico border reversed back in 2005, a trend that accelerated through 2014, that according to a Pew Research Center study. And native-born Americans, well, they're just not interested in farm labor, even at wages that have soared at higher than average rates. Enter the age of more farm mechanization as a result. Vast areas of the Central Valley have switched from labor-intensive crops such as grapes or vegetables to almonds, which are mechanically shaken from the tree. The high-value wine grape industry has re-engineered the bulk of its vineyards to allow machines to span the vines like a monorail and strip them of the grape clusters or the leaves. It may be too late to mechanize for the asparagus harvest. Last year, farmers in the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta harvested only 8,000 acres of asparagus. Back in 2000, they had harvested 37,000 acres. Other new mechanizations on the farm are having their growing pains. One of the biggest berry growers around, Driscoll's, is testing the Agrobot, a mechanical strawberry picking machine. However, the Agrobot was picking only a bit more than half the ripe berries in its trials last spring down in Camarillo. And in California's lettuce fields, uh, they're still testing a lot of interesting machines. In the Salinas and Imperial Valleys, an early generation of robotic machine uses a bandsaw to mow whole rows of baby lettuce as well as other greens. However, when Taylor Farms tried it on romaine heads, a slight height variation in the beds put the saw right across the heart of the heads, leaving nothing but shredded leaves. Another greens cutter uses high-speed water jets. It now cuts all the romaine heads cleanly and it can be adapted for cabbage and celery. And there's more mechanization in the world of planting as well. For example, thinning lettuce crops, there's a computer-guided sea and spray machine developed by Silicon Valley startup Blue River Technology. They say it can do the work of 20 laborers before noon. It's one of five robotic thinners deployed on thousands of acres of summer lettuce in the Salinas Valley. However, that machine is not perfect either. Laborers still follow the machines in the fields, hoeing out seedlings that the machine missed. The National Safety Council says the leading cause of farm operator deaths since 1970 is tractor rollovers. Now, five years earlier, tractor manufacturers produced the first models with rollover protective structures, ROPS. Chuck Schwab of Iowa State University Extension says this started out as anti-roll bars designed to prevent death and minimize injury in the event of a rollover. 
on some of the older tractors, probably some of the ones, especially without the cabs, you'll still see the bar, and whether it's a two-post or a four-post, and, and it provides that protective environment. However, many pre-1985 tractors do not have rollover protective structures. It wasn't until that year that tractor manufacturers adopted a voluntary standard to include ROPS technology going forward. Meaning that whenever you got a new tractor, it had it in it. It was a part of the structure. And that's where you see a big change is in 85, as all the tractors since then all have the protective structure in place. In fact... Most of your modern tractor have a environmental cab. All the new ones have ROPS integrated into that nice cab. So you no longer see this large bar that protects an individual. It's a part of that structure. Now what about some of those pre-1985 tractor models that don't have some form of rollover protective structure? Can those be retrofitted? Schwab explains. Some of those can never have ROPS because of the way they were made. There's some that can have ROPS retrofitted on those. Although retrofitting could cost more for an older tractor compared to its actual value. And no, an operator can't just add or install the ROPS, like a roll bar on the tractor axle, on pre-1985 tractors. Schwab notes tractor manufacturers conduct extensive static and dynamic crush tests on rollover protective structures to assure they are doing their job. So if you wonder what these two are doing these days... That's where seat belts come in play. If you're not strapped into that seat and you don't stay in that seat, then the ROPS may not protect you at all. That's great advice, Chuck Schwab, along with... If you're operating in dangerous conditions on slopes and hills where overturns typically occur, then by all means, use a tractor with ROPS. Don't use a tractor without ROPS. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. If you have farmland in the vicinity of the Feather or the Uber Rivers or any of its tributaries, you might want to make a little extra money by panning for gold. They're calling it flood gold. The combination of an extremely wet winter and the Oroville Dam emergency have created a scenario where key rivers in the state have been running high, washing away soil, and exposing the gold nuggets. Even workers at the Oroville Dam Project are seeing the nuggets, too. Finding a big chunk of gold is possible, but according to CBS San Francisco, most strikes range from only $40 to $300. The sound of my supermarket. Now, those of you who were born after the baby boom generation, my generation, may not fully realize just how much the American experience of grocery shopping has changed over the years and how much it's changing right now and is going to change. So uh, grab a shopping cart there. Come with us on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Back in the 1930s on into the 50s in some places, most people went to a small grocery store and instead of taking a cart around, picking products up off the shelf and then going to checkout, they had to go to a counter and talk to somebody. I want 10 pounds of kumquats and I'm in a hurry. Oh, yeah. Oh, kumquats, yeah. 10 pounds of kumquats. 10 pounds of kumquats. And you would go through that for every product, most likely giving the owner or a worker there a list. But then right about this time... In the early 1950s, the so-called supermarket came into being, spelling the death knell for the old way of grocery shopping. And suddenly, our personal contact with the store came when we brought the cart to the checkout person, which some of us, of course, still do. Just this stuff. Cocktail-sized paper plates? What is this? Degree deodorant? It'll be $441. 
That cannot be right. You're correct. You know what that means? I get to do something very rare. Five! Uh, all right, successfully avoided. All right, meanwhile, the supermarkets of the 70s, 80s, and 90s were getting bigger, bigger, selling everything under the sun along with food. Meanwhile, the checkout person went from to this, scanning the barcodes on the products. Then more recently, self-checkout lines, which comedian Bill Burr just could not accept at the time. I couldn't believe it. The first time I walked into a supermarket and I saw that. Here it is, I thought I was a comedian. Evidently, I also work in a grocery store. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna have a store. You come in, you pick out what you want, you bring it up, you ring it up, you pay me, you put it in a bag, and then you get out of my store. All right? <laughs> but lo and behold, self-checkout has caught on and flourished. So, what's next for us food shoppers? We just don't know how it's going to shake out. <laughs> However, Andrew Harrig with the Food Marketing Institute says things are indeed shaken and changes are coming, mostly because of the rise of online shopping, the rise of millennials who practically live online anyway. He told the Department of Agriculture conference the other day that at the moment, only about 4.3% of grocery product purchases are being made online. Over the next 10 years... There is a very conservative estimate there that it'll basically just double. But what we tend to think is more likely to happen is it'll be up to 20% of food and beverage sales. Ooh, now 20% of those sales would be equal to the average sales of about 3,800 supermarkets. So that doesn't necessarily mean those stores are going to go out of business, but they're going to have to evolve to reflect that. And they are doing that. One result already, the rapid decline of what was once a supermarket mainstay. Most of us grew up, we got the Sunday circular in the, in the, in the paper. We did our shopping by that. Nowadays, that's completely changed. And a lot of stores don't even advertise anymore that. They've moved almost exclusively online. And so we're seeing new ways to engage these sort of younger consumers. Meanwhile, Herrick says some supermarkets and many, many more other online retailers are beginning to actually sell some grocery products online, especially items you would normally find in the center aisle of your supermarket. So that's soda, packaged goods. Anything like that that you see in the center store is really moving online just for convenience sake. There's a lot of people who think, well, I don't really want to lug a 20 uh, case of soda out of the store, particularly when Amazon can just drop it on my doorstep in a day or so. And just this trend alone could change our local supermarkets quite a bit. And so what we expect is the stores to narrow those center aisles and expand the outer rim with fresh. And all our estimates show that what we call fresh, which would be meat, produce, and seafood, the sales are expected to increase at the brick-and-mortar level. But those products don't bring as much profit as those big bulk items. Also, as the population ages, more people may not be able to get to the store. Some chains have played around with online ordering and home delivery, which does cost a lot to start up. And there's no guarantee that even as you invest in those operations, it's going to drive additional sales. So things are changing with food retailing as more stores try to meet the demands of many different consumers, from baby boomers like me who shop the old-fashioned way to millennials who do almost everything everything online and who want it all. Convenience, healthy food, fast grab-and-go food, good prices, and they want it now. And Herrick says supermarkets are trying. But I don't know that anyone has entirely figured out the formula. But they're working on it. Oh, here we are at checkout. Who's next and ready for customer service to die for? Oh, no. Uh, you've been listening to Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. University of Washington geomorphology professor David Montgomery has traveled the world checking out soils. He wrote a book about it called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. One thing he found in South America was biochar in the Amazon. 
Biochar is charcoal produced in continuously smoldering fires. In this way, the native Amazonians build up nutrient-rich soil around their villages in an environment that otherwise wouldn't have much. Could biochar work in American agriculture? I asked David about that. Well, biochar is it's sort of the fancy word for charcoal. And it's, so if you take any kind of organic matter, you know, whether it's a twig or a leaf, or I've even seen a, a, a rose that was biocharred, and you, you burn it in a, well, you don't burn it, you combust it, you partially combust it in a low oxygen environment. Same way that you would make charcoal for, say, making steel, or you have a smoldering fire, you end up with charcoal. What that charcoal does is it, it well, what it is is that organic matter with most of the volatiles, all the things other than the carbon having been, um, uh, stripped off of it, and it leaves this very carbon-rich stuff, charcoal. That actually can be a very useful fertility-enhancing uh, mechanism. Uh, if you add that to soil and mix it in, it can, it can boost its fertility. In great part, I think, and there's there's controversy about sort of how it works, but I think it tends to, you could think of it as providing a habitat for the microorganisms in the soil. It also helps boost the water-holding uh, capacity of the soil. A, a soil with, with Charcoal distributed through it will be more retentive of water than one without that. And those two things, sort of a reservoir for water and habitat for microbial life, are two two of the elements for cultivating the beneficial life in the soil that can boost fertility. And the the element that that kind of needs to be paired with is something for those microbes to eat, so organic matter in the soil. That organic matter is also carbon-rich. It's not quite as as broken down as the, the carbon in, as, as charcoal is. Um, but those two things, the organic matter and biochar together, are ways to put more carbon in the soil and the potential to sequester carbon in soils, in agricultural soils, in ways that enhance soil fertility is actually something society at large ought to be very interested in as well these days. Are they doing this on a large scale down in Brazil? They've been experimenting a lot with biochar, and I visited people um, in Costa Rica, a different part of Latin America, Central America, where they were using biochar very aggressively to try and rebuild fertility to some long-degraded um, soils in that tropical region, and they were meeting with great success. It was a very interesting uh, visit. Some of them use just straight biochar. Others take that biochar, and they inoculate it with uh, microorganisms from, say, like worm compost or from mycorrhizal fungi that they get out of the, the forest will mix it together and brew up more microbes and then pour it on their biochar and then put that inoculated biochar into the soil. And I saw some farms that had, had done some pretty remarkable things in terms of restoring their soil um, by using those kind of practices for a while. Is biochar suitable for all soils or is it primarily for low pH soils because of the alkaline nature of biochar? Well, you know, I think that there's some controversy or, or you might find um, differing opinions about that among people who've looked at it. Uh, it looked like it worked very well in tropical soils where, where I was looking at it. We've also used it in our own garden here in Seattle for our vegetable beds and been really impressed with the results. Uh, and then, so I'm not real sure sort of how far across the spectrum of, you know, the world's 200,000 some odd different soil types biochar would be a major advantage in. But I, th- I think the ideas behind how it works lead me to believe it should be a fairly generalizable uh, soil amendment that would, at le- in the worst case, do little harm. The name of the book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. The author, David Montgomery. David, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Hey, well, no worries, Fred. It's a pleasure to talk to you. 
mergers and acquisitions, commonplace in many areas of business, have increased in recent years in the ag sector. Perhaps at the forefront these days are the proposed mergers among the world's largest seed and agrochemical corporations. You've got basically the big six that are merging or buying one another out. We're going to end up with either the big three or maybe four. In many ways, we'll end up with a duopoly. These are large global firms, and so they undergo antitrust review from countries around the world. Events that have farm leaders like National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson paying close attention, and researchers like Agriculture Department economist Jim McDonald studying potential impacts, some of which raises concerns like that expressed by American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall. Big may be more efficient, but sometimes when you're the consumer of what they're producing, it may not be the best thing for you. I'm Rod Bay, and coming up, a study of possible large ag company mergers in this edition of Agriculture USA. With the potential of mergers and acquisitions among the world's major agrochemical and seed companies, known in ag circles as the Big Six, what perhaps could be some of the impacts? Perhaps one way to approach this is through a historical perspective. National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson uses the history of the organization to explain his thoughts on competition and increased market access. Farmers Union was founded over 100 years ago, and one of the reasons we were founded was to deal with this very question then. There wasn't competition in the marketplace. The country was being developed, and you didn't have many buyers, you didn't have many suppliers. And so we ended up creating a bunch of cooperatives in our early years to try and add competition to the marketplace. USDA economic researcher Jim McDonald used historical data, trends, and evidence in a recent study of how possible mergers within the seed and agrochemical industries could impact markets, price, and innovation. We're drawing on our previous research on the importance of innovation in agriculture and on the types of regulatory processes, in this case antitrust processes, that are likely to affect this merger. He explains how antitrust agencies, both domestically and abroad, typically work, specifically in the context of making decisions about merger approvals. The focus would be on those chemical or seed markets in which the merger would leave us with a very small number of sellers, anywhere from, say, one to three sellers. Those would be, I think, considered to be problematic by the authorities, and they would be looking much more closely at those markets, either for seeds or for chemicals. McDonald adds that merging firms can sometimes reach further side agreements under which they can gain approval for merger. For instance, one company may sell off part of their pesticide or crop protection business to a third company that perhaps is not connected to a merger, a move that from the point of view of an antitrust agency that would maintain competition and maintain a certain number of sellers in those important markets. Some of the areas that an agency like the Department of Justice might consider in merger approvals are also those on the minds of farm organizations. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says, for instance, We want to make sure that there's enough companies out there to make sure we stay competitive, that our farmers pay a competitive price for it. And in the case of these series of mergers and acquisitions, when it comes to product and technological innovation, Roger Johnson of the National Farmers Union says from a historical perspective, There's going to be less innovation overall because there's less competition. 
Agriculture Department economist Jim McDonald explains the potential incentive to innovate is also reduced. Because in that case, the innovations that they produce would most likely be drawing sales away from their existing products, and therefore they would view the likely benefits from that innovation to meet much less than if there were far more competitors in the business. Zippy Duval adds, if these global corporations merge, such as cases where a U.S. seed and or agrochemical company is allowed to join, acquire, or be acquired by a European entity, will these new businesses spend those research and development dollars in America on American crops? And we want to make sure that they do that so that we can drive innovation and technology in our profession and be able to be more efficient. The merger picture among the big six agrochemical and seed companies could be in sharper focus by year's end, when many of these proposed deals are expected to be finalized, subject to regulatory approval. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service is amending the fruits and vegetables regulations to allow the importation of fresh pitahaya fruit into the continental United States from Ecuador. More popularly known as dragon fruit, the requirements include fruit fly trapping, pre-harvest inspections, and that only fruit from approved production sites may enter the United States. In addition, packing houses in Ecuador must put in place procedures to stop the movement of quarantine pests. Only commercial consignments can be imported, and those shipments must be accompanied by a phytosanitary certificate that's been issued by the National Plant Protection Organization of Ecuador, and it has to state that the consignment was produced and prepared for export according to the requirements of the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. Another fruit the USDA is proposing be allowed to be imported into the United States, pomegranate fruit from Turkey. After completing a comprehensive pest risk analysis, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service has determined that pomegranates produced in Turkey can be safely imported into the United States under a systems approach. Additionally, pomegranates would have to be packed within 24 hours of harvest in pest-proof containers or covered for transport to the continental United States. The USDA will carefully consider all comments received by the August 21st deadline and then make its decision regarding any change to the agency's import regulations for fresh pomegranate fruit from Turkey. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.